Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. As Dante moves into the second circle of hell, he writes, My wise leader brings me by another way, out of the quiet, into the trembling air, and I come to a part where no light shines. He's speaking of his leader, Virgil, who he often refers to as his maestro, or his teacher. I like to think of Virgil as being the curator of Dante's journey. He's guiding him every step of the way, choosing the right path, veering away from the terrifying demons and protecting his subject as he goes. The hand-shaped curator necklace is a symbol of the person who curates your journey for you, protecting you along the way. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is the world-renowned art historian, Bryony Fur. Currently a professor of art history at University College London, where I was lucky enough to study under her, and a fellow of the British Academy, Bryony has written extensively on modern and contemporary art, having published multiple books such as The Infinite Line, as well as a major monograph on abstraction titled On Abstract Art, Bryony has contributed to publications on the likes of Agnes Martin, Ronnie Horn, Ed Ruscha, Gabriella Orozco, Vita Selmans, and many, many more. A highly esteemed curator, Bryony recently curated an exhibition of Orozco and is currently working on an upcoming show of Louise Bourgeois at the New National Museum in Oslo in 2021. However, the reason why we are speaking with Bryony today is because a major focus of her research is on the German-born American sculptor Eva Hesse, whom she has curated exhibitions of at the likes of the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh and contributed to many publications and who is very excitingly the artist we will be discussing today. Bryony Fur, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you, Katie. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely fine. I'm pleased to be talking about Eva Hesse. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on because as mentioned, this is really special for me because I was lucky enough to study under you when I was at UCL doing my BA in History of Art. And something I was actually introduced to was abstract art of the 60s. And Eva Hesse, of course, is one of the most significant of these artists. But in a way, due to her pioneering use of materials and inventive approach to drawing and sculpture actually really refuses to be categorised. I think which is why she still remains so influential is because her work is so reactionary, whether it is through her bodily-like forms with her machine-like or bodily-like materials. And so I'd really just love to start off by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted with a work by Eva Hesse? Oh, that's a difficult question to start with because in one sense it's the it's the it's the hardest thing isn't it to describe what you feel like especially i feel with the work of eva hesse because there is some sense of the encounter with her work partly because of these strange organic materials or bodily materials as you said like latex or fiberglass that often you don't really know what it is that you're looking at there's something extremely, almost excessively bodily, but at the same time, it does not depict a body. You know, she does not paint naked bodies, yet there's some sense of fleshiness or something about the way that latex undulates. You know, it's skin-like, but it is not skin. So I think that sense of facing something that is quite visceral, you know, it kind of gets you in the gut at the same time as it uses these rather sometimes even elegant formats. She works in some ways with the minimalist box in a series like Accession and then completely subverts its measure. Totally. I think they're so reactionary and whether they make you feel sensations in certain areas of your body or just makes you feel about materials and the kind of machine-like access to materials. I, I think her work is full of contradiction in a way. And I'd love for you to just describe, I know you just touched on a session, but one of her works and kind of let me know why it affects you so much. I'm finding it very difficult to choose one work, partly because they all seem to connect with one another. But perhaps a work like Schema from 1966 It's a floor piece in a way, but what she does is create a latex mat and place that directly on the floor and on that latex mat that's only like by a meter by a meter, she then molded these latex balls, kind of cooked them in her oven in her apartment and placed these semispheres in a grid pattern on top of that mat of latex on the floor. I mean, it's a modular arrangement and yet the latex, certainly when she first made it, that latex was actually translucent. But of course, latex also ages over time and becomes opaque. So now when you see that work, it's not the way it was when she first made it. Yeah. But there's this almost awkward relationship between this regular modular arrangement and the very bodily visceral textures erupt in the face of that kind of regular grid pattern. 
So all the time mm. you're working with these things that shouldn't be compatible and they're not compatible, but they live together, which is kind of what art does. You know, two irreconcilable things can sit side by side. That's the good thing about art. And yeah. so I think that's a really great piece. I love the idea that she kind of cooked these things in her oven as well. You know, it feels so domestic in a strange way. Well, you know, there is that really provisional, so experimental. She starts to use latex in 1967. She gets the liquid latex from one of those stores on Canal Street, you yeah. know, in New York, where those <laughs> minimalists are buying their stuff too. So it's not not industrial stuff. She's using the same warehouse materials, but she's using the liquid latex. I mean, Louise Bourgeois had used latex before that in the early 60s. We don't know whether she saw Louise Bourgeois' work. Even someone like Heidi Booker or Alina Shapovnikov as well, it feels quite similar oh, to that. Oh, yes, absolutely. There is this moment of highly visceral, highly charged but using a, a material like liquid latex, I think for Hesse it's quite important that it's a bit like paint because she does start yep. off as a painter, but also quite hard to control. So she's painting that on in layers. She's got polyethylene drop cloths on her floor of her <laughs> studio. It's kind of incredible. It's yeah. like she is painting with it, but she's transformed it into something that is absolutely sculptural. So I think this sense of her as a sculptor is very important, but she's using materials that are really unconventional within that realm or only had been used within sculpture as part of the process of casting, for instance. Yeah. And what do you think kind of led her to create such inventive and innovative works? I think there's something of that generation where they are working with a whole host of materials that are unfamiliar within the realm of art but come from elsewhere. The minimalists had been using those kinds of ready-made materials. Yeah. But as soon as she gets the latex and then turns to fiberglass, she is able to take the work in a very different direction. She's really working on the edge of what sculpture might even feel like. A lot of it's very empty. You know, we said how visceral it is, but it can almost creep up on you, you know, because it, <laughs> sometimes yeah. there, the piece schema lies flat on the floor. You could almost kind of walk on it. It doesn't fill your field of vision, you yeah. know, so... A uh, little bit in that way, like an Andre floor piece, but how different. Absolutely, absolutely. And so kind of to take it back. So Eva Hesse was born in 1936 into a family of Jews in Hamburg and Germany. Can you tell me a bit about her childhood and her early years? Well, as you say, she's born in 36. I mean, she has a a traumatic childhood. I mean, like so many German Jews of her generation, but a, yeah. You know, she's very small. She's four when she and her sister are sent off on the kinder transport from Hamburg. So they leave their home and they end up in Holland. They then come to London for a short period. And then eventually the family settles in New York. An extraordinary experience for a child. Her father is a lawyer, if I remember rightly, and then has to retrain as an insurance broker. 
and you know they settle in New York. Her mother never really gets over the traumatic experience of the war and will eventually commit suicide. Her father remarries and so on. So a, a really difficult childhood, but a, she's somebody who has this extraordinary verve for life. I think there's always a problem with reading Hesse's work, not only because it's reading it too biographical, but kind of assuming that there's some pathos in the work because of this background, or that the work reflects this traumatic background in a straightforward way. And she herself as a person, I think, was full of an extraordinary zest for life. And certainly in the work, you feel this inventiveness. You know, these are not ruins of a tragic life. This is about making art that really matters, where everything is at stake in it. And so I think what's interesting is how there's no doubt that in some important ways she was a troubled young person, but art was everything to her and she made something out of this. Yeah. Her, her work is really life-enhancing if that's not too much of a cliché. No, I think you're right. Definitely. I always feel because she died so young, she died of a brain tumour in 1970. And of course, of course, we understand why a life should be mourned and, and honoured. But there was, I think it was Pincus Winton in Art Forum, there was a special issue where he presented excerpts after she died of bits of her diary, which, you know, showed some of the difficulties she experienced as a, in her life and illustrated side by side with it her little test pieces, which were all these experimental works in latex and fiberglass and all sorts of materials that she was really playing with that are often kind of funny and witty and rude and sexy and so on. (laughs) And, you know, Pincus Witten, an American critic, kind of presents them as if they're the ruins of a tragic life when you feel actually, no, this is about all the possibilities of her work. And I think it's really important to stress that at the same time as recognize the diaspora created such traumatic experiences for somebody of her generation. Yeah. I mean, she lived through such an incredible time as well. I mean, you know, when she was younger, she went to New York School of Industrial Art just at age 16 and then went to Pratt Institute where she was there for just a year. And I think just to experience New York in the 50s as well, there must have been so much kind of zest for making and using what you had around you and this new way of looking and painting and experiencing materials as well. I think that's another thing. You know, you have the abstract expressions who are breaking up the canvas. She also worked in magazines growing up. She interned at Seventeen magazine. And I think that's very interesting. And she almost kind of really becomes part of the scene in a way. And then she studies at Cooper Union and then studies at Yale. I mean, what must this time have been like for her? Absolutely. I think she's on the cusp also of a such a countercultural shift, you know, and she becomes part of that. And although she doesn't live to see that real burgeoning of the feminist movement in the early 70s, she's yeah. reading Simone de Beauvoir, She's very much part of this urgency that she feels from a young age that she wants to be 
an artist, you know, this determination that she doesn't want to have the life that might be conventional for a young woman of a slightly older generation or even of her own generation. You know, she very deliberately makes that choice that she does not want to live in the suburbs. She does not want to be a wife. So, no, I think she's very much of that new, this sense of the 60s and the counterculture, but also the turbulence of that time, politically, sexually, in every way. Yeah, absolutely. But in Yale, when she studied there, I mean... How important was this? Because, I mean, she was, must have been surrounded by incredible tutors as well at this time. Yes, I think that's an interesting question because I think she was young. She was taught by Joseph Albers and she becomes and she slightly jokes about this later on that she was Albers' little favourite on the colour course, you can imagine. And he was a very important important figure, I think, for her in some indirect ways, because I think a lot of the artists of her generation, not only her, held Albers in some esteem, but also saw him as very much old Europe, you know, this giant of a figure teaching his colour course at Yale. He's the bearer of the Bauhaus flame a very influential guy. But it was more she took something about process from him yeah. rather than about color theory. And he was very effective in that way, I think. So he was an important figure. Yeah. Otherwise, I think she's an interesting mixture because she's actually not like some of those slightly older minimalists. She becomes very close friends with Sol LeWitt, I love their letter exchange. It's incredible. (laughs) That really gives you an insight into everything that's going on. Absolutely. But, you know, she also hears a young artist when she's at Yale and comes out of Yale. She loves Gorky and de Kooning and she loves them more than Pollock. She likes abstract expressionist painting. She maybe doesn't do that kind of work, but in the early drawings, you can see how much she's engaging with these very improvisational, almost scribbly passages of a Gorky or something. And I think that's interesting. And maybe that's true of all artists. You know, they don't fit the neat stylistic boxes that art historians tend to think follow one another. (laughs) It just doesn't work like that. So, you know, what she's bringing all these really strange, disparate things together, like Gorky, Louise Bourgeois, and she is one of those artists who looks hard. Yeah. I mean, so much of her work is, you know, yeah. Duchampian and Yes, that kind definitely. Of thing. Because I think by the 1950s, for sure, surrealism itself has become rather old school orthodox. Yeah. But certainly the residue and all, well, the larger eccentric abstraction kind of idea of Lucas Samaras. There are lots of artists working in this vaguely surrealist mode that don't obey the rules of minimalism. You know, that's for sure. Yeah. Somebody like (laughs) Kusama, for instance, using repetition, but then using it to the point of absurdity. Yeah. Well, she would have been surrounded by people like Kusama and Donald Judd because she returned in about 1960. And then, you know, in New York at that time, art is shifting so often. It kind of goes, yes, you have abstract expressionism, but then pop art becomes on the scene and performance art as well. And also minimalism. I mean, there's so much kind of going on at that time. It's interesting because when she starts out, I think one of the most important things to note, if you like, is that (laughs) because she dies so young, 
tragically. This is an artist with a career of 10 years. I know it's It's almost kind of mad to to talk about early, mid and late parts of her career. It's 10 (laughs) years, you know. Um, When she starts out in New York, the first stuff that gets exhibited are really her drawing. She has a couple of shows in the early 60s and she's using ink wash and they're much more inclined towards a painterly or abstract expressionist vocabulary than anything that we would associate with pop or minimalism. You would see her very much as a painter and they were they were neglected for a long, long time. All, all those early drawings and paintings were regarded as the juvenilia until she turns to sculpture in the mid-60s. And it's only relatively recently that I think that early work has been taken seriously again, importantly, because it's remarkable and remarkable to watch her also turning from a painter into a sculptor and that being important somehow for her that you work with something more material and more literally object rather than a painting on a wall. Yeah. In a way, she uses these materials, like you were saying earlier, you know, latex like paint. She applies them in the same way, but just in a. Yeah. She brings these materials that had never really been used into art into art. But interestingly, and in, like you say, you know, it's only 10 years. In 1964, she actually returns to her hometown of Germany because at this point, she's married to fellow artist Tom Doyle in 1961, and they were living in Germany for around a year. And I think this moment was very interesting for her because not only was this returning to her childhood but also it was so significant for her in terms of the way that she changed and developed her practice here I mean I'm curious to know what happened here well that is interesting because it's Tom Doyle her husband who gets a residency in Ketvig in Germany and it's incredibly important for her they end up in Ketvig a provincial town and The studios that they occupy is in an old abandoned textile factory of the Scheidt family who were the patron. Yeah. (laughs) And she does a little bit of teaching, but she works in this old abandoned textile factory. And it's actually full of old bits of fiber and textiles. And she starts to work with those. She's also in Europe. She's seeing a huge amount of stuff. And I think that's also important. It's a difficult year for her. As you can imagine, returning to Germany for her was never going to be easy. And it it wasn't an easy experience. The relationship with Doyle was always difficult as well. But he was an interesting artist. And this was an incredibly important year for both of them, but particularly for her. It becomes a breakthrough year because she makes incredibly mechanomorphic drawings that really do invoke a kind of Duchampian language. But she also begins to use fiber and string that she's found literally on the floor of this factory. And she starts to build reliefs. And so the work comes off the wall and it, it has an intense erotic material quality And so something that hangs on the wall like a picture actually behaves as an object, i.e. is kind of disobedient in lots of interesting ways. And they're fantastic. But in Germany, they travel around, they look at a lot of art, and she's looking at Joseph Boyce. She gets to know Hans Hacker. 
and the work does transform and she creates a whole series of reliefs and a remarkable set of drawings. Yeah. And that's the turning point. Yeah. But I love how the drawings and the reliefs kind of go hand in hand because in a way she transforms these kind of industrial objects into these organic sort of quasi-anatomical shapes and she's doing the same with these industrial materials. It kind of yeah. all is very kind of going hand in hand. I mean, I'm thinking about a work, something like Ring Around a Rosie, which even though she's using rope or chipboard, you know, it's so industrial and sort of basic in a strange way and then she transforms it into this kind of organic very sexual almost erotic kind of sculpture in a way I mean this is just yeah she refers to that as her kind of her breast and penis work yeah (laughs) and it's in fact it's faded you know now it's much faded so it would have been much pinker yeah she's using very pop colors as well very bright colors pinks and in some of the others yellows acid greens you know there's something quite chemical about her color so I think that also adds to something almost comedic about this work it's perhaps comic and tragic at the same time yeah it's a bit pop but it's also witty yeah. And funny, isn't it? These crazy erotic machines that I think is the... And so sexually suggestive as well. Absolutely. <laughs> they kind of like burst onto you in a way. And then she returns to New York in 1965. Am I right in thinking that they don't return together? She's kind of off on her own. She's kind of completely changing her outlook. I think she's just bursting to get back to New York and start working. I mean, how is she engaging with work then, taking what she's learned in Germany and kind of re-entering this New York art scene? Yes, as you say, they split up. I think this is difficult, but she has many important friends. Solowit, you mentioned the letters that they (laughs) were sending each other while she was in Germany, and he's an incredible support to her. And they have a really interesting exchange around the work that she was doing. So the work changes again quite radically, because what she does is just abandoned colour. She gets back to New York and works with some of the same materials that she'd be working with, but takes them off the wall. She's working with papier-mâché, enamel paint, but she drops the colour. So suddenly in these important sculptures that she makes when she gets back to New York, and there's a really wonderful photograph of her studio with all these strange bodily weird (laughs) objects hanging on the wall and you know between the wall and the floor like some kind of great and but of course they're all in tones of gray black and grisaille and that's an interesting move it's almost as if she's saying well she doesn't need color anymore to make you feel the intense visceral quality of this shiny tacky black paint on something like vertiginous detour, which is suspended from the ceiling. It's kind of molded around a plastic beach ball and then has all these strings dropping from it. I mean, they're like nothing else. They again have these intense bodily connotations, but they're not pictures of a body. You know, it's not as if this is pubic hair. It's suggestive and therefore all the more impact, I think. 
Yeah, something like Untitled or Not Yet, which are these kind of greeny yellow sort of balls that are kind of hanging. And I mean, it's so sort of fetishistic and sexually suggestive, these shapes that are bound sort of tightly with corn. I mean, they echo sort of surrealist aesthetics, but they also kind of play on minimalism. And mm. I mean, that's partly a work, I think, about gravity, you know, bodily yeah. weight. But it yeah. has the suggestion of kind of pendulous bodily forms. But all it is is these fishnets filled with these polyethylene clear plastic that's been bunched, scrunched around weights so it hangs. Yeah. So inside there, there are weights, in fact. And, you know, so simple. And they're just kind of, they hang on the wall like it's a kind of butcher's hook. <laughs> Yeah. Something that she keeps saying to Sola Witt in her letters as well is this kind of notion of absurd. And it's funny that you should bring up this image of her surrounded by so many materials, because in a way, something a work such as Hang Up from 1966, which was kind of her most important early statement in a way, which is essentially this bare frame with this kind of giant loop in a way, this sort of why that hangs around it. And this is so interesting because I think that in her head, she was just constantly searching and searching and searching and searching, constantly just looking at all the kind of ridiculousness of everything. You know, she says, this is the most ridiculous structure that I've ever made. And that is why it's really good. It has a kind of depth I don't always achieve. And that kind of depth or a soul or absurdity or life or meaning or feeling or intellect, that's what I want to get to. <laughs> yeah, I think that's important. What she doesn't want is things to look too beautiful or too elegant. She makes a really wonderful work late on called Right After, which is string that's been dipped in fiberglass and is translucent and almost not there. It's a remarkable suspended hanging piece that yeah. glistens. And sometimes it's shown in quite melodramatic lighting. It's exquisitely beautiful. But she thought it was too beautiful. You know, she didn't want to go there. She was interested in the ugly and the absurd and the comic. Yeah. And I think that sense of deflating the body rather than elevating it was important to her. She's also working with the materials that are around her in the studio. I think there's very much Mel Bochner, her great friend, who's a very good commentator on her work as well, always said the work has the smell of the studio about it. Yeah. And it's true. Even when she's using ready-made materials, you know, the kinds of things that she goes down to Canal Street, she buys all these little metal washers or the polyethylene drop cloths or fiberglass. It really has that sense of the handmade and the sense of the kind of gut, Mm. Even if she doesn't make it herself, which is quite important. She, like them, is working with fabricators. She doesn't make the work necessarily herself. Yeah. So she's working with fabricators like those minimalists. And I think that's kind of important. But it still always has the sense of the hand, whether it's mm. her hand or not. And that physical involvement with the work is very distinctive and I think very much her own. And I think it's interesting that she should almost be kind of interrupting minimalism with these materials and these steel structures that she interweaves with rubber tubing or something. And yet you see this steel structure on the outside and then you enter into it and it's the most organic, shapely form ever. 
I mean, that's what's so interesting. She's disrupting the line in a way. And I think she takes it to an extreme point where you repeat things to the point of absurdity. But when you see the work, you're not quite prepared for the level of chaos that thousands of little bits of rubber tubing can bring in their weight, (laughs) you know, (laughs) as you look into that empty box. And I think that sense of emptiness, fullness, they have very important bodily effects. Somebody actually climbed into one of those because they are so tactile and so inviting. Oh my gosh. That was quite an interesting (laughs) moment because, you know, people are always talking about how haptic, how tactile, uh, the importance of touch for Hesse's work, which is absolutely right. But it doesn't necessarily mean you physically have to touch it you know it does happen in the imagination there's an amazing scene in the documentary where she's actually put her head in one of the accession cubes and what's amazing is she has this studio I think on the Bowery and you know it's near Canal Street and everything's so loud and she just kind of goes into this box and it's like this sort of state of calmness and it's silent because it blocks out all the noise yeah yeah that's incredible isn't it I think it's interesting the way that she is obviously not a performance artist, but there is something very performative about her work and about the way she presents that work, not only in some of the films, but in the photographs that survive. You can see her Mm. putting herself into a relationship with that work in a performative way that I think shows something about it that's important. Yeah, she really kind of is at one with the material. She really gives herself to it. And I also think as viewers as well, you almost give yourself to it as well, whether you're surrounded by something or it sort of overpowers you. There is this kind of connection, I think, with the work. Yes, I think that's right. And I think one thing we haven't mentioned is an increasing preoccupation with time as well as space. And when she starts working with materials like latex, which she immediately takes to and starts experimenting with. The thing about latex is that it ages over time. But what she finds is a material which has time built into it. Yeah. Because with latex, the color changes. It starts off as this very pale yellow-like surgical gloves. As I said, it's translucent. You can see through it originally, and then it becomes darker and darker and opaque. Obviously, it perishes, which is one of the problems of Hesse's work for us now in that a lot of it has deteriorated, even to the point that it threatens to disappear completely. And there are lots of discussions about how to deal with that. Can we remake them? Or to what extent can you show them when they're so fragile and so vulnerable? But I think she was already aware of how precarious the material was. She obviously died before she could see what would happen to some of the work in the end. Yeah. But I think she wasn't interested in that idea of the work as a romantic ruin that would sort of just end up as a pile of dust on the floor. I think she was more interested in the idea of process in which time was embedded in it. Yeah. 
Definitely. And then it's, I think it's, I mean, maybe I shouldn't always bring biography into it, but I think it's hard to sort of avoid in the sense that, you know, in 1969, she does have a brain tumour. And actually the work that follows here, something like Untitled 1970 or right after that you mentioned earlier, I mean, everything does sort of start to collapse and contract in a strange way. I mean, like we said earlier, she is so kind of at one with her work. It's almost as though the fragility is becoming more and more apparent in the work as well. It's interesting, isn't it, that and very tricky, I think. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, we should remember that she starts to use these materials earlier before she becomes ill. Yeah. And she's definitely not a Sylvia Plath type character in a way. (laughs) And I think just at a practical level, she doesn't know that she's dying. She is an artist who wants to live. So certainly 1969, when she has her first operation for the brain tumor, and then the deterioration that will happen. I mean, she becomes somebody, I think, in a hurry to make work and to make the kind of important work that she wants to. And she really loses inhibition by that point. Well, yes, it does literally kind of collapse in the sense that it's so out there. You've got all these works, the untitled from 1970 that is still in the studio. She's working on the model in her hospital bed. It's so out there. So I think there becomes a high level of risk-taking, that final period, which one can also understand psychologically and is certainly part of the biography is certainly a key factor there. It has to be, hasn't it? Mm. But I think, yeah, we do have to be careful not to read in or project too much pathos because we know the end of the story was. But of course, there, as we said earlier, is somebody who just wants to carry on making work. Yeah. I mean, if anything, maybe it kind of, something like Untitled, there's so much kind of gestural intensity there is so much kind of going on. There are so many different sort of tangled and weaving in it. And, I, and, and like you said earlier, this idea that the light can also change these works as well. I'm thinking of something like Repetition 19, which kind of glows. It's just incredible the way that she uses the materials. Yes, absolutely. So the fiberglass of Repetition 19, they almost seem to hold the light in a way that's very transformatory. So I think there is a real intensity here. I mean, I like to see, you could say this is me projecting as well, but I think her experience of illness, which must have been extremely frightening and was, you know, in the end it killed her. But the work, I see it very much on the side of life. This is somebody who really wants to make work that isn't a mawkish reflection on her own dying. Her work's always been about the body, but one could even say that a work like Hang Up, which was bandaged around that frame that you described, that hospital bandage, which she's painted. To what extent do we read back over that? I think that would be wrong in a way. She's a young person. I feel rather strongly about that, but I think she's producing more and more ambitious work as we go through the 1960s and and the work from the very end of her life just has this incredible risk-taking aspect to it Mm. yeah I mean that work untitled 1970 is untitled because it had no title you know it wasn't (laughs) finished 
Yeah. I mean, it's not even clear how you're meant to show it. So the way we show it tends to follow photographs of how it was in the studio. But it doesn't mean that's the only way they can be shown. And I think that sense of how contingent they are or how open they are to their surroundings is Mm. part of their radical nature. You know, that's part of what's so out there about Mm. them. Definitely. And sort of during this time towards the end of her life, was she kind of getting the recognition that she deserved? Because in 1972, obviously, two years after she passes away, there is the kind of giant Guggenheim show which fills the entire museum. And that's just work from that decade. I mean, was she exhibiting widely towards the end of her life? I think she gets recognition. She has a a really important solo show at the Fishback Gallery in 1968 when she shows her latex and her fiberglass work. So she gets critical recognition. She gets noticed. People write about her. I think the show at the Guggenheim is an interesting phenomenon because as I understand it, talking to people who knew her at the time, as I've done over the years, as well as her wonderful sister, you know, who's still alive, Helen Cherish. Well, as I've understood it, the show at the Guggenheim was really the work of her friends and especially Lucy Lippard, you know, who becomes her great champion. Mm. And I think it's testament to love and friendship that those figures organized that show. And Lucy Lippard, I think, is an incredible figure in that, you know, we owe in some ways this artist to the fact that Lucy Lippard wrote that book about a friend and an artist who she hugely admired, clearly. And this book was hugely influential, even though there weren't that many exhibitions of her work and certainly not outside America. I never saw it, sadly, but Nick Sirota curated an exhibition of her work at the Whitechapel when he was director there in 1979. I wish I'd seen it, but that was very unusual. You know, it's not in some ways many, many artists because she's been incredibly influential on other artists, especially women artists. Do you know, I think a lot of that occurred through Lippard's book, people, myself included, poring over these little grainy photographs of this work before you ever actually saw a work by her. I mean, she was not entirely neglected through her life, far from it. You know, she had critical traction for sure. And I think she was a really respected figure. She wasn't a a woman artist who was absolutely excluded and she was beginning to get that recognition. She was in important shows. She was in When Attitudes Become Form. Zayman showed her in that show. So I think she wasn't fated, perhaps, in the way that some of those other artists were. But, you know, she did get that critical recognition. But I think not as much as her male peers. Yeah. (laughs) But her work has been on a, a slow burn. And that influence that she has had. Mm. I think has been unbelievable. You know, it's hard to estimate. But as I say, when I was in a conference once that Elizabeth Sussman organized that 2002 retrospective at SF MoMA that I wrote for and was involved in that. Yeah. A lot of the artists 
that they got to talk there were talking about Lucy Lippard's book and, and how they kind of first, as I say, poured over these little grainy photographs. Then, of course, when you see the work, it's so different from the grainy photographs. <laughs> It's interesting, I guess, her legacy as well. And she's inspired this generations of artists now. I mean, can you say what she's maybe taught you the most? Well, what I have learnt, but when you actually look at the way her works relate to one another, there's, as I say, this incredible internal logic that's not a nice linear rational order. If you're trained like me as an art historian and like you, Katie, and, you know, one of the problems with art history is that it tends to like a nice tidy picture of the art of the past yeah. and how it historically developed. And, of course, you know, the way art gets made is messy and awkward and a bit chaotic. Mm. And the kind of intelligence she brings to her making is remarkable. And I'm not saying she's the only artist that works in this way, but for me, she's taught me the most about how art gets made. Yeah. Actually, I think she's an incredibly rigorous artist. I think the discipline of work of an artist, of any artist, you know, going into the studio every day. But to be honest, what I've learned most is something about the improvisational nature of making and how important that is you know how important it is to kind of hold to that project even though you don't know what the end is going to be for me it's a an important reminder of you know getting your hands dirty and there's something quite reckless about good art you know it doesn't fit neatly with our own agendas and and I think for me Hessa really embodies that on the reason I came to her in the first place, because I felt this was an incredibly important woman artist who somehow kind of reinvented a language in a way that touched upon the topography of a female body. And that for me was very important as part of a different way of thinking about art history from a feminist point of view that yeah. you know wasn't about pictures of women or about depictions it was more about how you could remap something about the body from a, a woman's perspective that was very very distinctive and very strong so I, I would say both those aspects are really important yeah Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bryony. This has been an incredible education. As this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guest, if you had met Eva Hesse, what would you have maybe said to her or asked her? I mean, there are so many. I'd probably be absolutely dumbfounded and forget all of them. <laughs> one thing I always would have loved to have known is apparently when she was, I think, in hospital, but late on and ill, she talked about being interested in possibly making a film and what that kind of film might be. And I always wanted to ask, you know, if I had that chance, what on earth are you thinking of? What kind of film would this be? Would it be abstract? To what extent could you translate your interests into film? That always really both shows that I think how much she's always thinking about how she can experiment and take the work further. But also given how 
important time is, I think, to her work. And film is obviously a time-based medium. That would have been interesting to ask her about how she might have thought that one through. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Bryony. Thank you, Katie. Thank you all so much for listening to the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Bryony Fur on Eva Hesse. It was such an incredible insight to hear her speak about Eva's such experimental career, which has obviously gone on to influence generations of artists. This episode was sound edited by the great Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.